I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Five billion people died in 1996 and 1997. Almost the entire population of the world. Only about 1% of us survived. Are you going to save us, Mr. Cole? How can I save you? This already happened. I can't save you. Nobody can. I am simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. Hello, I'm Terry Gilliam. That clip is from 12 Monkeys, a little film I made in 1995 about a pandemic, misinformation, and fear. Who knew it would come to be so relevant 25 years later? Welcome to That Podcast, an audio storytelling project that brings together writers, comedians, musicians, scientists, journalists, and people from all walks of life to talk about the extraordinary and the everyday in an attempt to make sense of the world we live in. In today's episode, that podcast in which the truth is out there, we jump down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, let AI run our lives for a while, and wonder if democracy stands a chance. We're going to talk about truth and misinformation in a time of pandemic. Algorithms don't always get it right. In fact, they get it wrong a lot. You can see the misshapen lies built onto the things that you're shown if you just look up. My mum had at least one foot in the real world. <laughs> I'm not a hippie. I have respiratory issues. Satan, I'm getting the impression that you've lost your edge. That is a democratization of our world that the internet promised. And as soon as he returned to Earth, apparently he converted to Islam. This little smile grows over his face. And it is horrible. I look at an infographic and I try and track down the sources first, or I think, where is this information coming from? But I know that there are certain people in my peer groups who might not do that. There was blood everywhere, all over me, all of my top, all of everything. To kick off the episode, I am talking to Mark Kermode about 12 Monkeys and the state of the world today. Well, it's lovely to see you again, Terry. Obviously, one of my favourite directors of all time. Started directing with the Pythons, went on to Jabberwocky, Baron Munchausen, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Tideland, Dr. Parnassus, Man Who Killed Don Quixote, Time Bandits, Brazil, Fisher King, and of course, 12 Monkeys, which I'm shocked to realise it's more than a quarter of a century old. Yep. Just on the assumption, Terry, that anyone is listening to this who isn't immediately familiar with 12 Monkeys, I would say stop listening to the podcast, go away and watch 12 Monkeys and then come back. (laughs) Explain for us the basic setup of 12 Monkeys. The main character is a man called James, played by Bruce Willis, who may have come from the future to help find the cause of a virus that wiped out humanity. I think what's been so funny about it is how the film has been reborn as a result of COVID, because suddenly it seemed to be very prescient. Yeah. It wasn't trying to be prescient. It was just trying to tell the story we were telling, which was the fact that a pandemic could put civilization back into some very different state. Bruce Willis is in the future, 2035, I think, and he is being sent back to the 90s to try and find the source of the outbreak so that in the future, which to him is the present, they can then develop a vaccine. 
And I remember interviewing you when 12 Monkeys came out and we were talking about it as a science fiction scenario. And you look at 12 Monkeys now and you think it, it's so on the nose. Terry, this seems like a very good moment to play a clip from 12 Monkeys. This is a clip in which Brad Pitt's character, with whom Bruce Willis's character finds himself incarcerated in a psychiatric institution and who has all the outward appearance of craziness, kind of starts to explain what his theory of crazy is. Let's just listen to this. Do you know what crazy is? Crazy is majority rules. Yeah. Uh. Take germs, for example. Germs? Uh-huh. In the 18th century, no such thing. Not a, nothing. No one ever imagined such a thing. No sane person. Ah, ah. Long comes this doctor. Semmelweiss. Semmelweiss. Semmelweiss comes along. He's trying to convince people, well, other doctors mainly, that there are these teeny tiny invisible bad things called germs that get into your body and make you sick. Huh? He's trying to get doctors to wash their hands. What is this guy? Crazy? Teeny tiny invisible. What do you call uh, uh, germs? Huh? What? Now, got to the 20th century. Huh? Last week, as a matter of fact, right before I dragged into this hellhole. I go in, I order a burger in this fast food joint. The guy, he drops it on the floor. Tim, he picks it up, he wipes it off, he hands it to me like it was all okay. What about the germs, I say? He says, I don't believe in germs. Germs are just a plot they made up so they can sell you disinfectants and soaps. Now, he's crazy, right? See? There's no right, there's no wrong, there's only popular opinion. You, 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 you believe in germs, right? I'm not crazy. Of course not. Of course not. You want to escape, right? That's very sane. That's very sane. <laughs> one of my favorite moments, Bruce Willis eating a spider. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of philosophical ground that gets covered is quite remarkable, not least because it ends up in something which will strike a chord for everybody who has listened to nutball QAnon conspiracy theorists saying that the virus is a hoax. But that's what I loved about the script when I first read it, because this was a script that had been around for some time. Yeah. Nobody wanted to do it. I don't think they could understand what it was about. It seemed to be so many ideas, concepts thrown together, and to me it made perfect sense. Other people just don't seem to consider these things very often. When you get the idea of what reality is, it's always framed in some sort of sci-fi world that, you know, it's so easy to understand what is reality and what isn't. But in 12 Monkeys, it was a constantly shifting thing. I identify with it completely. I understand the problem of not knowing whether I've experienced something because it's real or it's a memory or it's something implanted in me yeah. by advertising. And so that was one of the things that intrigued me about the script of 12 Monkeys. I understood that. Madeline Stowe, who plays psychiatrist, Cole, She's witnessing things that can't be happening, and everything she knows is now brought into question. And that really intrigued me about the film, but it's the thing that still amazes me most. The virus is, is almost a red herring, yeah, to be quite yeah. honest. So that also leads us on to, there's another clip I want to play, a very brief clip with uh, Dr. Fletcher and Dr. Riley, who obviously her whole thing is that, you know, that she's a, she's a rationalist, but during the course of the drama, she comes to question that rationality. Fred, you're a rational person. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. And what we say is the truth is what everybody accepts, right, Owen? I mean, psychiatry, it's the latest religion. We decide what's right and wrong. We decide who's crazy or not. I'm in trouble here. <laughs> I'm losing my faith. Okay, now one of the things I love about that scene, Terry, is that idea of constructed belief. Yeah, and it's how the entire financial system of the world is based, on faith. We have a faith-based economy, <laughs> believing the system is working, and it's not true. That's why I think the crash of some years ago was a perfect example of the people who are supposed to be the wise men in control of money and finance proved to not even understand how the very system that they're living off of worked. And we live in a time when, well, look at Boris telling us how, and Matt Hancock, how wonderful 
the system was dealing with the virus at the beginning. I just saw today, we, the UK, has more deaths per capita than any country on the planet. And we're sitting here thinking, oh, well, it worked out really well for us. We did a pretty good job. That's what we're being sold at the moment. It's not true. Okay, so what does 12 Monkeys then tell us about ideas and misinformation? I mean, it's funny because ideas in the film almost become like germs. You catch bad ideas off people because they tell you something that isn't true. In the 60s, I was quite keen on conspiracy theories. But the older I've gotten, and the more I found and meet people who are supposed to be in charge, my belief in conspiracy theories falls apart completely. But it is about how ideas get out there. And with social networking, it happens even faster. Because we moved from a society which were peasants all over the place gossiping. And we thought the men on the top knew what was going on and could control the system. Now, with social media, that control is disappearing. And anybody's idea is good as anybody else's idea is it's basically Alice's rabbit hole. Yeah. And, and you can chase any number of white rabbits you want every day of your life. It's about the way people want to believe. I think it's the real power is that you, the individual, want to believe certain things. You want to believe things are under control or you want to believe that things are not under control. You make a choice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my own belief is that, you know, chaos trumps conspiracy theory every time. Yes. I don't know. Did you see recently the, the Adam Curtis Can't Get You Out of My Head TV series? I think it's which, the best thing. It's been on television for a very long time. <laughs> wasn't it wonderful? And that brilliant moment when you realise that the guy that made up the Illuminati <laughs> conspiracy theory to prove how nuts conspiracy theories are ends up... Yes wondering whether he might actually be right because he's done the thing. He's gone down the rabbit hole. I have to tell you, I did this in college. Every year, freshmen would come in and there would be these welcoming ceremonies where they would be, you know, inculcated into the way the system works at college. And so we did it with a torch-lit parade and we created a whole ceremony where we passed to them all the the traditions and the ways of this, that, and the other, all the rules of the game, effectively, to them. Every one of those was a lie. What was interesting, that the, the, the freshmen then spent their whole first year believing all this stuff and acting accordingly. What was bizarre is the seniors who had been there already for three years started believing them as well. But I couldn't believe we were doing this for a laugh, for fun. And and suddenly it was like the Illuminati. Suddenly people are believing him, and that is the cause of all of our problems, this mythical lie. People have a desperate desire to believe that the chaos around them is organized, and therefore they will impose on that the kind of, you know, the the QAnon or or the whatever it is. If you record silence and you listen to it for long enough, you start to hear voices in the silence. And a lot of people started to think that these were the voices of the dead. And the electronic voice phenomenon became a great area of interest in the 1970s. And actually what's happening is your brain, if it hears white noise for long enough, will start to impose order on chaos. It tells you why certain religions begin in the desert. It's very funny how the silence of the desert gets gods talking to you. When 12 Monkeys came out, I got a message, a very long one, from a woman who discovered the truth of 12 Monkeys, what it was really about. Oh, tell me. And, well, just think of James Cole, J.C., 12 monkeys. We had suddenly, it was Jesus and his disciples. It was all this huge, elaborate, it was much better than the film, this woman's idea of what the film was about. And and people dive into it and they start taking these images and constructing their own universe, which bears very little relationship to what I was trying to do. But it's, it's how you approach Everything. I've never grown out of the structures put into my brain by the Brothers Grimm. Those fairy tales are the structures I still see the world in. If you've been raised with a great religious upbringing, those are the structures you see the world in. 
and whether it's Judaic, uh, Hindu, Islam, or Christian. Religions are providing a structure for people. So the thing does make sense. We live in chaos. It does not make sense on any level that we really appreciate, I'm convinced. And so I think it's very interesting. I'm not going to name names, but one member of our household is not going to get vaccinated. I cannot believe this. Why? The difference is how you perceive the world. I grew up in the 40s and 50s when polio, tuberculosis, ruled the planet. It was everywhere. And we've wiped out polio. We've wiped out tuberculosis, basically, smallpox. But because now everything is going so well except for uh, COVID, now people don't want to get vaccinated for COVID. And they're not probably going to get themselves vaccinated for polio or tuberculosis because those diseases are now coming back. Terry, let's, look, look, let, let's go from there to a clip from, uh, from 12 Monkeys, which relates to what you're talking about. Hi. I think, Dr. Rayleigh, you've given the virus a bad name. I have. Mm-hmm. Surely there's very real and very convincing data that the planet cannot survive the excesses of the human race. This is true. Proliferation Hot. of atomic it's devices, uncontrolled breeding habits, pollution <laughs> of land, sea, and air, the rape of the environment. In this context, isn't it obvious that Chicken Little represents the same vision? And that Homo sapiens' motto, let's go shopping, is the cry of the true lunatic? That is, that is David Morse. Yes, who is brilliant. He is absolutely stunningly brilliant. It seems to me that there is a fundamental difference between doubt and uh, questioning and conspiracy theories, and this is the difference, that anyone looking you know, at the world who is inquisitive, who is intelligent, will question what they're being told, they will question the structures around them, they will question where the knowledge comes from. Uh, that is a process of understanding what you don't know. To me, conspiracy theories seem to be going completely the other way, which is saying, I don't know something, so I'm just going to impose something on top of it. Yeah, but, but things like doubt and questioning takes time. I mean, the problem yeah. of being a filmmaker, an artist, uh, anybody with intelligence, is you've got to spend so much time questioning, reading, thinking, listening to other points of view. How do you get anything done with all of that going on? It's my feeling. And <laughs> that's why I was so much smarter when I was young. I knew what was right and what was wrong, what was true and false. But this is the problem. Getting old, you realize how little you know. That's a simple fact. Maybe that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing that you know very little. And that's all it is. But I find most of my films are reactions to the real world. I think I seem, at certain points, I feel I understand the world. So I create a world that looks like the world I think exists, whether it's Brazil, whether it's time. And and then only in time do I realize that how wrong I was or what I've learned over the years is how right I was. I was just 10 or 20 years too early. I think all I'm trying to do with the films is to get an audience, get all of their brains dancing, because I think that's what it's about. And exploring other things and not being rigid in your desperate need to cling to uh, an understandable reality. So here we go, part one, where we go down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. Well, my dad is a very ardent believer in conspiracy theories and has been for decades. And so this last year has really been like all his Christmases come at once. It started early on in the COVID pandemic. So he's been sending me emails about 5G. It moved to being anti-mask, COVID being a... I'm not really sure what he believes on COVID because I get mixed messages, whether it's not real or it's not as bad as the flu. Like it doesn't exist or it does exist. I'm not sure that we've had both of those. And then more recently in the past few weeks, months, it's been all about vaccination, how I shouldn't get vaccinated because basically it will kill me and everyone else. And it's also related to my children. Okay, maybe I'll get vaccinated, but dear God, please don't vaccinate the children. They've still got long lives left and it's going to 
either kill them or it's going to give them some horrible disease which may happen within days or weeks or it could be uh, 19 years from now i don't know why it's 19 years but that was the <laughs> that was the timing so that's been the last year in a nutshell every time i refute something he says which i don't do as often now because it's it's all got a bit too much but um he will not answer that refutation he'll just send a new claim and it may be quite different from the previous one it's some compartmentalization of the brain that goes on where you can even hold two conflicting conspiracies at once for instance he doesn't believe we landed on the moon for various reasons one of those reasons that came out is that we weren't technologically advanced enough in 1969 yet he also thinks president obama has been trained on mars so there's an american base on mars um <laughs> you can always move the goalposts basically in the early 1960s my dad got into scientology So he was a Scientologist for over 20 years. Um I was born into that. They call it a religion. It's not really a religion. I call it a cult now. So I was born into that and brought up in that organization. My dad was really a very strong believer. I think my mum was into it a bit. My mum had at least one foot in the real world. <laughs> But it was our lifestyle. for at least the first 12 13 years of my life before my mum and dad split up my mum left scientology and left all that behind but she was still into new age stuff and got into alternative healing um my dad i don't know he's a troubled soul really he's looking for the answer to life the universe and everything spiritually and that has included Well, yeah, why hasn't he found the answer it's because they are trying to stop him from finding the answer i think that's kind of what it boils down to it's an excuse it's making a reason out of the chaos of the world it gives him some control i think and i also recognize what he's doing does come from a good place he doesn't want me to get killed by vaccines so it comes from a place of love i think he's into all the alternative medicine stuff and that gets me a bit because my mum who was also into alternative medicine uh had cancer She did use mainstream medicine for a bit. She eventually decided to go the alternative route and she died from that as well as spending a lot of money on what I consider quacks. People lost their lives due to believing conspiracy theories, bad science, and also the people who take advantage of them. You know, it can lead to death as well as anxiety problems. It's it's not nice having to deal with that kind of thing. We're going to get into all the interesting detail of what the neuroscience, psychology and sociopolitical stuff behind misinformation is and what we can do about it if anything. But first, let's start from a place of empathy with a story. Here's an artistic commission by award-winning playwright Kimberly called Breadcrumbs, exploring the ways in which we warp the truth. Remember that, where? Under the road, where the wooden fence used to be. I don't see it. Trees grew over the path, but it, it's there. It's on the left, under all the branches. I left my gloves there. Hang on, I'm parking. Is this I left the... my other glove by the turn. Wait, what? Why are you... You really don't remember the way she looked at us. It was all such a long time ago, and... I think you get hazy. You think I'm crazy? No, I said hazy, not crazy, but of 
course I don't think you're crazy. We were so young. How can we possibly... Right, okay, fine. Well, fine. Okay, there was a, a, a person. We could agree on that, yes? Yes. Great. So, a person who tried to yeah, see, that's, eat you... No, I don't, I don't think you can... She did. No! It was, it was her. They were both her. I am... No, you. stop it. I was there too, and this is not... Not... Oh. A.M. What the hell is here? Walk. Look, you know I've always supported you and believed in you, and I would never do anything to hurt you, right? This, this is. Why is it always your word on what happened and not mine? Oh, brother! No, it's true. You don't listen to me. You never have. All right, fine then. Fine. You tell me. Go on. You tell me what happened. Well, okay. First, there was a famine. Says who? Says everyone who survived those years. Like who? Like who? Like our father. And he knew this because... Because it was all in the papers and the farmers on market day, they all said... Uh -huh. Oh, what? You, you don't believe there was a famine? So... <laughs> So all the people were just doing a, like a really restrictive diet or something? No, I believe that people believed there was a famine. That our father believed there was a famine and that newspaper owners needed to sell newspapers. What's that supposed to mean? And that our father believed the family was starving because of the famine. I believe that he believed that. So then? So then, because of the famine, he and Mum, they... ...did what they did and abandoned that. Yeah, which Dad has apologised for over and over. The, the whole new wing of the Fellowship Hall at the church is dedicated to our, to all of the children from that time who were lost. Uh, so, took us into the woods and abandoned us, and then... And then our mother died of starvation during the famine. No, what happened in the woods? We were lost and hungry. Uh-huh, and? There, there, there was all that unpleasantness with the breadcrumbs trail that got eaten up by, by, by birds, I think. Yeah, sure, it was birds. It wasn't birds. If it was really a famine and everyone was starving, who would leave pieces of bread to be eaten by birds? Anyway, then what happened? Then we found our way home. No, before that. <sighs> found the other glove. Good, you're here. Go under. Oh my god. It's her in there. I know it's her. Criminals always come back to the scene of the crime. I knew she would come back to that gingerbread oh, house. Man. God, what the fuck? Oh, calm down. I've just been watching. I'm watching and waiting for you. What a good alibi. You know Anne Frank's house? When me and Angie backpack around after college, we visited Anne Frank's house in Amsterdam. And if you stand outside the house and look up, you can clearly see the shape of the hidden annex. And you know, any fool would know, you know, would see that the inside of the house did not match the outside of the house. Like the truth. You can see the misshapen lies built onto the things that you're shown if you just look up. But, of course, it's, it's harder to see these things if you're still in the house. You know, to see the truth, you must be inside the house and outside the house at the same time. You've got to put two and two together, and you know, I, I know that you're bad at maths, and I always used to do your maths homework for you, and I, I shouldn't have, but... Here we are now. This is the place. This is the mess we left, and I am going to clean it up. No, no. She's dead. She was just an old woman, old and alone and hungry like us, and she's dead. No, she was trying She was not. We never saw her clearly. She was always in that cloak with the hood. Her hair was always a mess hanging in her face. It was almost like she didn't want to be recognised. It was almost like it was a disguise. No. You know, my whole life, 
I have never been able to shake this feeling of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I can't rid myself of this uneasiness, this wondering why ever. It buzzes around my head in the daytime and it comes for me at night. It never lets me rest. I used to think it was because there was something wrong with me. Now that I'm older, I've come to understand it as a friend. Like a stomach pain. When you're hungry, it's your own self trying to tell you something, trying to save your life. Because there have always been too many pieces in this story that just don't fit. Too many things that don't make sense. Too many unanswered questions, like, you know, if there was a famine, why is it not talked about in the history books? It is. It's right there in all of the history books. Or in our own family. You know why, because our father is ashamed. Why should he be ashamed? If he actually tried to stop her from leaving us in the woods, and, and then also... Why would a man that physically strong be unable to stop a tiny woman like our mother from doing anything? Why wouldn't he just stop her? Maybe because he was involved. Maybe because there was no famine. What? There was no famine. There was no supply chain disruption. There was no starvation in the land or even in our house. Think about it. Did you ever see another starving person? We lived outside of town. We, we were isolated. We... Well, if we were so isolated, then how do we know all about this supposedly widespread famine? <sighs> you know, I saw this thing on YouTube the other day, and the guy was saying whenever all the online chatter gets overwhelming, you can cut to the truth by asking one question. Who benefits? Which was like a, a light going on in a dark room for me. All these years, all these questions, the constant wondering why it all fell away. Because, of course, when I ask myself who benefits, it's her. And Dad, sure, but at least he kept us when we went back. And why wasn't she there? You know, we weren't gone for that long, a couple of weeks tops, and when we got back, there's Dad or plump as ever, and somehow she's dead and gone of this supposed famine. No, I know it was her. It was her in that house in the woods. Who else would have known to make gingerbread to lure you? Who else knew how much you love gingerbread? And so that old woman in the woods was our mother. What? No. I know it's a lot no, to get no, your no, mind no, around. No. So, are you saying? What are you saying? That the own mother lured us into that cabin in the woods to, to eat us? No. Okay, then, then what? Not us. You. She was going to eat you. <gasps> And she was going to sell me. What? She came up with a plan to get rid of us and make a profit to boot. It all fits with the, the rise of child trafficking in Central Europe at that time. Have you seen the statistics? It all fit her plan. Except me. She didn't account for me and that oven. But I don't think I finished her off. I remember I, I shoved her into the oven and then I, I busted you out of that shed and we ran like hell without looking back. We never saw a body. So who knows what really happened to her? That's always stuck in my head too. It's part of the, the uneasiness. I'm always scanning crowds to see if she's there. It's, it's a reflex, like checking a room for emergency exits. I, I scan for her and she's never been there. Until one week ago. And what was one week ago? Do you... Do you hear that? The humming. Her birthday. See? It all adds up. Oh, trust me, I've gone through this whole process that you're going through right now. The, the, the disbelief, the shock, the denial. I saw her on the high road and it all came flooding back. I followed her out of town, and, and wouldn't you know, Hansel? Wouldn't you know she went straight back to the gingerbread house? I think she had the kitchen remodelled. Of course she would want a big space for her cooking. Gretel. I'm not going to let her hurt anyone else. I know you don't believe me, but you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the facts, little brother. Do the maths for yourself. If you just look at the facts, it all adds up, and you'll know. Feel that click in your gut that tells you when you found the truth. You've been inside it all for so long now. You deserve the truth. It's there. 
Anyone can see it if they just go outside. You're outside it now. You're here. You're outside. Now look up. Just wait. That was Breadcrumbs by Kimberly. The truth can be a slippery thing. Don't you agree? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I keep hearing that we live in an era of post-truth. Well, I'm not so sure if that is the case. But to find out more, I spoke to Dr. Stephen Lewandowski, a cognitive scientist at the University of Bristol, with an interest in misinformation. Stephen spends a lot of time researching how myths, conspiracy theories, and misinformation begin, and how they spread. I'm a cognitive scientist. That means I study how people think. And I'm based at the University of Bristol, But right now I'm in Brussels working as a visiting fellow with the European Commission because I wrote a report last year about how online technology may have an impact on the health of our democracies. And so I'm here now trying to find ways in which we can convert the science into policy. Are we actually in a time of post-truth and all that implies? I've never quite understood the idea except that people don't believe anything anymore. Truth still exists, I assume. And you're supposed to be checking that for all of us out here in the world. Well, of course, truth exists. And the word post-truth is a little problematic because it seems to imply as though everybody was honest until this post-truth came along. Well, not really. Remember Watergate? Remember Iran-Contra? Remember the weapons of mass destruction? I mean, you know, we have a lot of dishonesty in our collective histories. What has changed, though, I think, is that dishonesty has now become a feature rather than a bug of politicians. Some politicians are now using dishonesty almost as a trademark because it means they can pretend to be champions of the real people by violating this establishment norm called honesty. So violation of norms has become a sign of distinction. And and that is, I think, a shift from 10 years ago. And I think it is very problematic because you can't run a democracy on dishonesty. This podcast is supposed to be about misinformation. So I really would like to hear you talk about your actual scientific approach to what has been going on. I've been obsessed with QAnon and the acceptance of belief there. This restructuring of our religious belief systems is what seems to be going on as Christianity fades away. You know, we are being replaced with conspiracy theories, misinformation, this need to believe in things that are more interesting than what really is going on. As if reality wasn't fascinating enough, yes. You would think it would do the job, but people don't seem to care. Let's get to the (laughs) psychology of this. A pandemic always causes an increase in conspiracy theories and people believing them. And the reason it does is because 
whenever people feel that they've lost control over their lives or that they are scared, frightened, whenever that happens, some people resort to conspiracy theories. And they do that because it offers a weird sense of comfort if you can blame somebody for everything that's going wrong in the world. So if I can say, oh, it's Al Gore's fault, or George Soros, or Bill Gates, or whatever, for some people that provides psychological comfort, rather than accepting that this pandemic was effectively a random event. You know, some bat sneezed on a guy in a Chinese cave, and a year later, we're all locked down. I mean, which is probably what happened, and it's hard to accept for some people. To actually blame all that's gone wrong on bats seems to not be taking off, really. People haven't turned on bats in any large numbers, as far as I know. There's laboratory experiments that show that. If you can make people feel that they're in control, they're less likely to accept conspiracy theories. Now, in a pandemic, that's extremely difficult. How do we give people confidence again in the system? Well, first of all, I keep saying that only some people resort to conspiracy theories. And I think that's really important to keep in mind, because when you look at the data over the last year of the pandemic, in many countries, including the UK, trust in experts and scientists has increased as a result of the pandemic. And so the majority of people is taking the pandemic to realize how important it is to look at the evidence and have scientists kind of work the stuff out rather than some populist saying some empty slogan like take back control. The virus doesn't care uh, about slogans. No, I think the virus has a great sense of humor is what I think it has. After take back control, <laughs> wow, it came in and it was the, it was the punchline, basically. Uh, uh, I think you're right. There, there is, I sometimes wonder if reality is not sort of doing a, a comedy on us. Yeah. I just wonder because, you know, as a product of the 60s and the Vietnam War, the killing of Kennedy, it's been quite a long time that the public have lost faith in governments or trust of governments, isn't yes. it? Yes. Certainly trust has been declining in most Western countries. The United States is the most extreme example. Trust yeah. has been declining in pretty much everything for decades. Now, it is, however, not a uniform decline, in particular in the United States. It is highly polarized along partisan lines. So, for example, if you look at trust in scientists, it's remained very high and invariant over the last 50 years among Democrats. Among Republicans, who, I mean, it's hard to believe, but in the 1970s, they actually trusted scientists more than Democrats did. Since then, there's been a dramatic decline in trust in scientists among Republicans over the last 50 years. Look at climate change. If the climate scientists are right and we have a problem with climate change, then whatever the countermeasure is, it's going to have to be some interference with free market economics. You've got to have taxes, a price on carbon, regulations, you know, all these things that interfere with business as usual. And for somebody who is committed to the idea of free markets, that is an incredibly challenging idea. And if they have a choice between accepting a tax and denying the science, well, guess what? A lot of them will just deny the science. We know which side Trump was on, that he was a free marketer and a doubter of climate change, but he was also a messiah for a whole group of people, it seemed, the QAnon crowd. And so this need to believe was quite interesting, and they really turned him into a messianic figure. And that desperate need to believe was quite extraordinary. And yet you could have a messiah, but I suppose if you've got a messiah, then you've got to have a cabal of evil that the messiah will save us from. Ba-bum. Populism is defined by its division of society into an evil elite on the one hand and the virtuous people on the other. And that's really all populism is. And it has to create it artificially. And you, you just find some scapegoat, you know, Jews, Muslims, immigrants. In the UK, yeah. it was immigrants uh, from yeah. the EU who were, you know, the cause of all evil. 
but the people's belief in themselves and their country is quite extraordinary as they've now separated from Europe and are floating out into the Atlantic. It's going to be the new Atlantis, Britain is, I think. Slowly we'll sink below the waves. You're, you're, you're betting on slowly. Okay, you're an optimist. So that's good. Reality has that nasty habit of trickling down. Even though these populists we've been talking about are spending a lot of time trying to rewrite it, I'm still hopeful that eventually reality will reassert itself on, on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. It's very clear that we're now in, in the middle of some sort of a paradigm shift. And... Um, Misinformation and social media has certainly contributed to that. Certainly, there are actors out there who are Mm. trying to polarize and divide and undermine civil society. Whether that's the whole story or just part of it, I, I honestly don't know. It's, it's, again, the big question is what social media is doing to exacerbate the problem. One of the, the... key pressure points between technology and democracy is the attention economy. The fact that the platforms want your attention because they can monetize that and they'll do anything to grasp your attention. It would be miraculous if an attention economy gave rise to high quality information. We can inoculate people against misinformation, for example, by teaching them to spot when they're being misled. So there are some attributes of misinformation that are pervasive, or certainly of conspiracy theories. Most conspiracy theories are incoherent, for example. They're telling you that COVID is a hoax and it doesn't actually kill you, but in the same breath, they're also telling you it's a Chinese bioweapon. Well, it's a pretty ineffective bioweapon if it doesn't kill you. It's sort of this contradiction or climate deniers who say, oh, you know, no one knows what the temperature is because no one can measure it. It's so unreliable. But by the way, don't you worry, it's been cooling for 15 years. So if you teach people that, they get reasonably good at detecting when they're being misled. But it's not sufficient. It is not sufficient. You cannot put it on the consumer's shoulders. What we really have to do is to look at the business model of social media platforms And we have to provide some public accountability of what they're doing. Is that one of the things you're dealing with in in Brussels as as we speak? And are they listening? Are the politicians listening and willing to start legislating to control? First of all, yes, they're listening out of self-interest and self-preservation because a lot of politicians have, certainly in Europe, have recognized, wow, you know, (laughs) if we don't manage this, then democracy is going to become increasingly difficult to maintain because radical elements will take over. But of course, it's a hugely complicated process to turn that into legislation. I think the European Union is about to do that with the Digital Services Act. There are all these steps happening, and I suspect they, in the long run, they will be successful. I mean, they have to be successful, otherwise... Mm -hmm our societies are just going to become increasingly polarized with negative consequences. It's interesting to hear how misinformation can become weaponized in a power struggle. But to wrap our minds around what that really looks like, let's have an artistic perspective. Here, with a piece about using information in a toxic fight to be seen and heard, is Gary Owen's Parallel Play. He phones. Nothing for God knows, and then he just phones. I'm stuffing a bacon sarnie down in front of payroll, but I wipe my chops, let her go cold to listen. All his work's gone overnight with the lockdown, because it's a new job. He's getting nothing. The sympathetic noises come back to me straight off. So the contract on the flat is coming up. Maybe you best give it up now, then struggle months down the road. Don't be daft. Things won't be going on months. If you look into it, everyone's saying it will be months, in fact. Mm. So, can I come stay at yours? At mine? Just while this is going on. Do you mean, can you come home? If it's not inconvenient. No, love, it's not inconvenient. It'd be lovely to see you. And then he's telling me when he's coming and what he's bringing and all the things he's going to be doing to look for work. I'm going to need the broadband up to as fast as it can go. 
But I'll pay for that, obviously. I say yes, obviously. But in all the time he's telling me, there's something not being said. Only I can't hear it. Two hours later, I'm tromping round Aldi's, getting the things he likes, and thinking, actually, I don't know what he likes these days, and... I do hear it. Finally. What is not said. In all this talk about coming back to live at mine, he's not said thanks. He turns up with less than I thought. Backpack, wheelie suitcase, a couple of bags for life. I'm travelling light. Had to, really, because I let Emma have the car to move with. So where's all your things, then? Managed to get to the dump before they closed it. You dumped all your stuff? I was always a bit of a hoarder, wasn't I? Wonder where I get it from. How come Emma couldn't take your things back to her mum and dad's place? Christ knows it's big enough. It is big, but it's not actually a warehouse. And then I see... But he's not going to say... Unless I make him. Yeah, well... She was always a bit of a selfish cow. Normally he'd get eye-rolly at me slagging Emma off, but no. He's just quiet. I have another couple of goes at her over the afternoon. I remind him about the time she said her parents had done the right thing, sending her to private school because it wasn't really fair she should take up valuable space at a comprehensive. I remind him about her hair. And he lets me. In the end, I say, What? What? We had a conversation. A very honest conversation about how things would go with me. Not being able to support myself and Emma. And it took her a lot to admit this. What she'd always wanted was a partner, an equal. And there was part of her, if she was very honest, that didn't feel comfortable supporting me. I mean, the odd week, every now and again, she's always been amazing, but if I wasn't pulling my weight in the medium to long term, she wasn't sure how she felt about that. She wasn't sure she could really think of me as an equal. You should have knocked her up years ago. Then she'd need you around to look after the kids with all the schools closed. Yep. Thanks, Mum. Yeah, that's obviously what I should have done. Should have knocked her up. Oh, don't pout. I was joking, Christ's sake. Some things aren't funny. Well, you just got to work to see the funny sides. Why do I even bother talking to you about this stuff? Oi, I get not a word from you for months, and then like that, you're back under my roof. It was my last resort, I promise. I bet it was. Right, fine. I'll go. To where? Don't worry yourself. Back she goes to her lot. Back you come to me. Back you come, and you're welcome. I'm glad to have you, like little Miss Emma bloody wasn't. And that's a hard thing to say to him. But he's thick sometimes. I know you're busy, but you never even text me. How long does it take to send a text? Really, it's seconds. We're talking seconds. And you can't be asked to spend seconds just saying, Hey mum, hiya, how's it going? But Emma finds the time to text Lord and Lady bloody twatface... Keep them sweet for the inheritance. He looks down. This little smile grows over his face. And it is horrible. Is that what you think? The smile opens out into a grin. You think I was too busy. And the grin is like he thinks I'm funny and unbelievable and disgusting at the same time. You think I was too busy to talk to you? No. No, it wasn't that. Do you want to know what it was? Actually, love, can you wander into town for me, pick up a couple of things for tea? Yeah, no worries. What do you need me to get? Well, there's not much you can get. Everything's gone. we got charity places, bookies. The only proper shop left is the bloody Polsky Sklep. He stares at me. I don't say a thing. You'd rather have nothing than the Polish shop, wouldn't you? I didn't say that, love. i got to get my milk and fag somewhere. You would rather be worse off if it means you can get rid of the foreigners. And when you can't get your milk and your fags, that'll be someone else's fault too. You're always telling me I should stop smoking. But you don't stop. And when you get cancer and you go to hospital, there won't be any nurses to look after you. Because you voted to send them home. Well, I voted Labour and things around you were shit. I voted Tory, and things round here got worse. And both of them said, whatever you do, don't vote for Nigel. 
So now I got rich bastards like Cameron and Corbyn and little Miss Emma calling me scum because I won't do what they tell me. You voted for a racist. And he won. No, he didn't. Well, by a tiny majority and by nowhere near a majority of the population. But yes, he did win. He didn't win. We did. There's a thing kids do when they're little. They play in the same yard with the same toys. But they don't play together. They play side by side like the other doesn't exist. And that's how me and Alex go on in the same space, but not together. I say kids, I mean toddlers. When he needs to print something, he waits sat on the stairs till I'm finished on the computer. Doesn't ask how long I'll be, just sits there, breathing. Maybe a grumpy puff on his inhaler. Then when I'm finished, moves in, does some complicated plugging in to my Bluetoothless PC. I see him looking through my tabs. What? He doesn't answer, but does a big heavy sigh, which is the same thing as answering, just gutless. Don't sit there, sighing at me. What? What? All right, answer, or you can't use my computer. You bloody child. Then he stalks off. So I have to step things up. That night, I do some printing myself. And soon, I got a few posters in the window along with my NHS rainbow. He gets up. He sees there's something in the window. He says nothing. Boots on, he heads out to the Polsky Sklep for his daily ramen, and he stops outside the house. Looks. I see him, shake his head, go to just walk off, and then he turns, races back. You cannot have that crap on our house. Oh, you're talking to me now, are you? Take that stuff down. It's my window, I can have what I like. No masks, though. No test, no mask, no fake vax. Somebody's got to put a brick through the window. Might be right. These are very intolerant times, you're always telling me that. But we've got to stand up for what we believe. You know this is nonsense. All this crap you've been reading. Covid is Chinese bio-warfare. Share now before the government take this down. And? Viruses mutate. It's part of nature. Do you know what Porton Down is, Alex? I've been a member of CND since I was 12, so yeah, I do. You didn't till you read that bloody website. So our government makes biological weapons, but the Chinese don't, because they're bloody saints. You'll be telling me we didn't land on the moon next. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. I'll wait to see the evidence. You saw it on TV. Pictures you can fake. Everyone knows that. Okay. All right. Can't believe I'm chasing you down this rabbit hole, but let's do this, shall we? If the moon landings were fake, why didn't the Russians scream about it? Given that the whole point of the space race was America and Russia trying to beat each other to the moon. If the Americans faked it, why didn't the Russians show the world their deep space radar? Let everybody see there was no one up there. Sorry, what's that, Mum? Nothing to say. You believe all that then, do you? All what? The Cold War. You think that was real? (laughs) Russia, America, two sides of the same coin, love. Just big business tricking us into an arms race so they can get rich while we get scared. And climate change? Is that real? Climate changes all the time. Everyone knows that. I've been alive a lot longer than you. I've seen it. So what would prove to you that the moon landings were real? If I could see the ships left there. You want to go to the moon. There are such things as telescopes in the world, Alexander. So how come we never see a picture from a telescope of, like, the old moon buggy left behind there? Love... I don't know. We haven't got telescopes big enough. Convenient, isn't it? We've got massive telescopes for looking at stars and galaxies billions of miles away, but none big enough to look at the moon, where we can supposedly fly to, in about four days. Is this real, or are you winding me up? I just like to think for myself, no matter what nasty names you call me. You liked Farage because he was a cheeky chappy with a cheeky grin, and he liked a fag, and he liked a pint, and... Of course he was bloody grinning. Have you got any idea how much he earned? 20 years as an MEP. More than me. Yeah. Like they all do. You think this stuff's a joke, Mum? You think it's funny to wind me up, but things are going bad in the world. Well, thanks for popping home to let us know things are going bad, love. We never noticed they were good. Must have passed us by. And you think things are going to get better now, round here? You think Nigel gives a shit about you? Tell me you're not that thick, at least. I hadn't voted for years before Brexit. But I will now.
every single time. Now I know it actually makes a difference. Well, he shouldn't fucking be allowed to. He turns away. He stops. Turns back to me. Look, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. But he does mean it. He fucking does. That was Parallel Play by eminent playwright Gary Owen. It's been a particularly tough 12 months. My parents have always erred on the side of anti-government. They don't trust authority. But in the last year, it's gotten particularly tough because where my mum lives in Australia, they have been fairly unaffected by COVID. And where I live in Australia, we have been very affected by COVID. We experienced a 112-day lockdown last year to help curb community transmission. And partway through that, I got a job working in COVID response. And I was put in this position where I had to be very careful about how I talked about my work because my mum was going out very early on in the piece and walking around government buildings, protesting lockdowns with a high-vis vest saying no mandatory vaccines, my body, my choice, and bragging about it to me. She started telling me that masks were a health risk. She told me lockdowns don't work. Um, and partway through last year, she effectively quit Facebook to join Parler, which has become home to a lot of people whose views and voices have been uh, removed from the more traditional platforms and she's just further isolated herself and insulated herself into these circles of misinformation. My dad has also followed her down that path. They've become increasingly concerned over the last 12 months that these lockdowns are a way of governments creating an environment of fear so that people will be more open to more authoritarian regimes. It's about undermining our sense of individualism. It's about teaching us that we should do things for the masses to the detriment of ourselves. They're concerned that the World Economic Forum is going to use this time to push the Great Reset, which in their mind is a thought experiment, looking at how COVID can help us look at the massive inequality across the globe. I guess, depending on what you read into it, you can take what you want out of it. But my parents have decided that it's some ploy from some leftist, socialist, one world government pushing regime to try and take away their individual liberties, their hard earned cash. Someone's going to make them, you know, take possession of their house and their wealth and redistribute it and they won't have anything that's theirs. So often we try and look after ourselves and our society promotes individualism in so many different ways. And in the last year, what we've seen in really successful COVID responses is the community coming together. It's people putting their community ahead of themselves, whether that's staying at home, whether that's looking to get vaccinated, whether that's governments funding mental health supports. It's been about how can we support everyone by all making small sacrifices. And I think that's something that really terrifies my parents. When I try and talk to my parents about anything really, climate change, GMOs, 5G not being a health risk, masks not killing people, they get aggressive, they use ad hominem attacks, they move the goalposts, they put the burden of proof on me and if I point out that something is propaganda, the response is, we taught you what propaganda looks like, don't you try and make out you're smarter than me. There's a real sense of inferiority around it. And I think, and this is just me hypothesizing, but I feel like maybe they're getting to a, an age where it feels like everything's changing so fast, everything's moving so fast and everything's becoming foreign. And 
I think they just kind of lock down and want to go back to the good old days. You know, my auntie was telling me the other day that dad had issues when seatbelts came in because that was impinging on his liberties. They're both very smart people, but I think they're concerned about becoming irrelevant or not having worth and, you know, not having the same influence that they did. You know, I don't go to them as my first point of authority anymore. You know, when we're kids, ideally in a good family environment, your parents would be people who you respect and you listen to and they're the first people who can kind of guide you through the world. And at some point I stopped referring to them as my main guiders and I think that alienates them, you know, especially when I take such strong oppositional positions. I know for a fact that when we have children, vaccines are going to become an issue because my dad's already said to me that when I said to him, I'm concerned this is going to become an issue for us and I don't want this to divide the family. If you make me choose between my child or you, you are going to lose and it's going to break my heart. My dad's response was, well, look, your mum and I would be very sad if something happened to your child and they were vaccine injured. But at the end of the day, as a parent, it's your choice to make your own mistakes. Phew, that takes us to the end of part one of this episode, but we've only started to scratch the surface of this thing. So come back for part two, where we're going to learn about the lies embedded in our algorithms, how big data has changed the world, and what it means for democracy. See you in part two. Part one of that podcast, in which the truth is out there, we jump down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, let AI run our lives for a while, and wonder if democracy stands a chance, was hosted by Terry Gilliam, and featured Mark Kermode, Dr. Stefan Lewandowski, and contributions from members of the public. Breadcrumbs was written by Kimber Lee. Hansel was played by Jack Rowan. Gretel was played by Sorica Groundsell, and The Woman was played by Lizzie Watts. It was directed by Robert Delamere, with sound design by Ben Walker. Parallel Play was written by Gary Owen. Nick was played by Mally Harris, and Alex was played by Sean Daniel Young. It was directed by Richard Twyman, with sound design by Mike Winship. The host script was written by Jennifer Baxt, with Holly Gilliam and Terry Gilliam. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.